It is good to be in the house of God during this Advent season to consider the coming of our Lord Jesus. Um, let us ask the Lord to bless our sermon and the speaking and teaching of his word today. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of your grace and mercy has made us new creatures in Christ and has caused us to be born again, not of our will, not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of you and of your sovereign grace. O Lord our God, how excellent is your name in all the earth. All things praise you. Heaven and earth resound with your glory. Grant, O Lord, that our hearts be filled up in joy, in praise, and adoration, not only in this blessed season, but all the days of our life, that we would be ever mindful that the great adversary cannot touch us, that he that that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. That's because you are for us. Who can be against us? Our Lord and our God, thou hast made us very rich, bearers of all things in Jesus Christ, and we praise you. Make us ever mindful in this season of the gifts of the glory and of the eternity of your gift. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we're certainly reminded during this time of Christmas, there's a real push by retailers, by manufacturers, by software makers, by security camera systems. I mean, everything out there is being advertised. This is what you need. This is what you need to get for your household and your family, maybe even for your business. You know, it seems as if we can't escape the economic realities of the world around us. Now here's what we need to bear in mind, that God put us in this world knowing that we would have to deal with money. Money and economics are not simply sinful. Business and working to make money is not sinful. Earning money, maybe even in God's special blessing upon some, becoming rich, done in a godly way, isn't sinful. But in all these things, people who are in business, people who are making money, they have to consider all kinds of things. They Today, most companies are concerned about their culture. They have this phrase about engagement. They want engagement from their employees. They want to build a culture where their employees will be engaged. Right now, according to our most current research, just 15% of employees are engaged. They're not participating in the culture. And what is engagement? It's merely emotional commitment. And of course, companies are thinking, how do we get emotional commitment? How do we create a culture where the people care about what they do? And companies see that this emotional commitment is a key to their success. In fact, this past year, almost a trillion dollars has been spent in companies worldwide in order to try and increase 
emotional engagement. These companies that, that find some type of success are 21% more profitable. But you think about this, if only 15% of employees are engaged and have this emotional commitment, you're saying, well, why is this? Well, the fact is, when you ask the employees why they're not engaged, they will tell you that 91% of leaders lack communication skills. Well, I guess memos don't work. I guess, no, I'll even say God's Word teaches us that it is about personal relationships. It's about commitment. And you might say, what does any of this have to do with God's Word, Advent, and even considering the Incarnation? If you uh, looked in, the, in our email blast this week, you will have seen that the title of today's sermon is Advent, Living in the Incarnation. And you might say, I don't understand how this illustration has anything to do, but I'm talking about today to live in the Incarnation is to have a culture. And to a degree, because God created us as emotional beings, to be emotionally engaged. Although I would want to be careful about using this type of psychological jargon to describe what the relationship with God and others should be in the church. But I will say that this idea, they're not wrong in thinking that there needs to be some sort of culture. There has to be something that everyone believes in in common and that has to be reminded of all the time. As Christians, we are called to have lives centered around Christ, to be Christocentric. And this is why I have a love for the church calendar, which is why I like to see us doing Advent, lighting the candles, doing a few things extra special. And you know, even in our relationship, and you've seen it already, there's been parents carrying kids out, babies making noise, maybe jiggling a little something in front of you, being a distraction. This is beautiful. These are signs of the covenant. What have we said? We have said to our children, we want you to be in the presence of God with us. We are engaged in building a culture. You know, I want us to consider Advent, the incarnation, as... Uh, centrally important to our life. Many of you might know the famous Presbyterian theologian Machen. He makes this quote in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, because this is the big deal, the Incarnation. And this is what he says, No product of sinful humanity could have redeemed humanity from the dreadful guilt or lifted a sinful race from the slaw of sin. But a Savior has come from God. There lies the very root of the Christian religion. There is the reason why the supernatural is the very ground and substance of the Christian faith. Without Christ coming, without the incarnation, without Jesus being born 
of a virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no God-man, which means there is no Christian faith. This is really important that we grab a hold of this, that we begin to say, yes, this is a key doctrine of our faith. Our text for today to kind of set this in motion is from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. It says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son. In the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at this passage and then talk about its implications in our life and in our daily liturgy and in the liturgy of the church. First of all, in Christ, there's no condemnation. And it's not just no condemnation. There's now no condemnation because of Christ Jesus. And it says this, because we read these passages and we get all bowed up and tripped up on all of the, the things that we see as, uh, you know, rules to follow and, you know, if I do it just right and, and yes, it's in Christ, but, but now I've got to somehow work it out on my own. I'm pushing hard for my own righteousness. No. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've been baptized and you have confessed your sin and declared Jesus as Lord in your life, you are in Christ. You are no longer condemned. And it says this, because this is where all of a sudden we get in this whole contention. We say, yeah, but, but what about the verses after that? Well, yes, but remember, what's the lens? The lens is there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. And then you can rightly understand what comes next. For those that don't walk, don't walk according to the flesh. That word walk really means to regulate one's life. So when we're in Christ, we don't regulate our life according to the flesh. Okay, and that is to be born of natural generation. It's not this fleshy body. Remember, the restoration of all things, we have resurrected bodies, and we're walking between heaven and earth, and on this earth... It needs to be redeemed. It needs to be restored. It needs to be placed in right order by the heavens coming down and being opened up and the firmament bringing in God's throne room at the very end of the age. But we need to understand this, that we are to regulate our life. The truth is, everybody has a liturgy to your daily day. You get up. You take care of certain things. Most people have some sort of order. 
What happens when we don't follow our regular order? Now, I'm going to pause just for a second. Moms, you guys have a plan, and kids happen, and you have to adjust and modify the plan. Same thing sometimes in, in business, right? You think this is what you're doing, something else pops up, your priorities are out. But every day you need to have a liturgy of life, a plan that you're working off of. If you simply say, well, there is no plan because, you know, kids are messy, that doesn't mean you don't ever put the toys away, right? And so I, I, I just want to encourage you, we need to focus on having a liturgy of life. In other words, at some point in the day, we need to read God's Word. We need to pray. We need to have family worship. We need to walk according to the Spirit. Lay out, regulate our day in this way. Now, it goes on in verse 2 and says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. So this is Paul talking about himself and how, because he's not condemned in Christ, if he regulates his life according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, the law, right, it, it can't help him. It does point out sin. It does teach us right and wrong. It does give us moral ethics. But you know, law and justice without grace and mercy is out of order. I keep saying this just because I know it's so important because I myself am the chief of all sinners in this area. That is this, fathers, listen up to me. I mean, this is application for all of us, but fathers, are you listening? In your house, let God's grace be one notch higher than justice. Okay? Because the point is, I'm not going to just simply make you obey a rule because I can or because God put me in this place of authority. But no, your goal as a father and of course as mothers and as a church is to train up worshipers of the Almighty. And how does the Almighty, the Holy God, deal with you and I? His grace and mercy is forefront while he is dealing justly with us. Right? So let us be full of grace and mercy with our children, with our wives. In that area, I was reading out of a book earlier this week, and this one line struck me. Men, the thing you have to guard your wife from the most, and this has application to your children, to your business, to the others in the community, but especially our wives and children. The thing you have to guard them from the most is your own sin, our own sin. <coughs> Praise be to God, we're not condemned by the law any longer. There's no more condemnation in Christ Jesus. We need to regulate and have a liturgy of mercy and grace centered around Christ. I want us to understand that for what the law couldn't do, for what the rigidity and truthfulness of the law couldn't do, it couldn't save people. People had to go and make sacrifices for sin all the time. 
and just keep doing it and doing it. But we know that what the law couldn't do, because it was weak, not that it wasn't true, but, but the people trying to live the law were weak. And the law was weakened so much as that it could not deliver us from sin permanently. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in sinful flesh, because again, we tend to think it's his fleshy body. This is about, this is about being in the sinful curse of Adam. It is important for us to understand that this has all been predestined by God. The incarnation is necessary for our redemption. This was not God's plan B because plan A went away by Adam's sin. The triune God knew that he would need to redeem us, his creation. This was his plan. And that the incarnation, him sending his son as a man, was going to happen, and he said it was going to happen right there when he was dealing with Adam and Eve. So at that precipice in Genesis chapter 3, where God is talking with Adam and Eve, he is being just with them and dealing with their sin, and he kills an animal and he covers them up. Their nakedness wasn't just because they had no clothes. They were undone and completely naked before God in their sin. Blood was shed, their bodies were covered as a symbol that their sin was covered. But he makes a promise in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 of the incarnation where he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now it's interesting, like human nature is, we always think that God's promise, oh, there it is, it's all figured out. If you look at the passage here where Cain and Abel are born, you see that Eve's words are, oh, life and hope are coming through these children, which was true. But you know that firstborn, the one that you would most think, oh, this is going to be the one that's going to take care of everything. What does he turn out to be? A murderer. And not just a murderer of a stranger, a murderer of his brother. Right? God kept his promise. It wasn't how Eve thought it was going to work out. I'm sure Adam as well. But we need to know that God has had a plan. And listen, the incarnation, Jesus taking up fleshly form and being our Savior, has implications in every area and aspect of life. Isaiah chapter 7 says this, And the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? God was telling us there in Genesis 3, then through the prophets here in Isaiah 7. But this area of, of Christ's work is not limited simply to one special place. No, it is for all of life. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And what shall be upon his shoulder? The government. And what will his name be? Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. You know, this is what everybody searches for. Isn't it? People want peace in their life. They want a counselor. They want someone to be wonderful in their life. And yeah, they're worried about governments and all those other things that go on in the world. And when he comes, he is Lord over all these things. This is what, this is what God is saying. It isn't just to de deal with the sin problem, get your sins forgiven and don't live your life ordered by God or not centered around him. And here's the thing of the increase of his government, again, very political here. And peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It will increase and increase and increase all the way till the nations are discipled and the end will come. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establishment with judgment and justice from that time forward and even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. <coughs> Excuse me. At the close of the prophets, Micah again predicts where Jesus will be born and what he will do. And God at the same time as, as speaking judgment against the people of Israel and the close of the prophetic age. I mean, obviously the last prophet is John the baptizer, right? But there's a long gap, 400 years from Micah to John the Baptist. We don't get to the promised land without going through the wilderness first. But here Micah, speaking the words of God, condemns them, the people of Israel, for their sin. And, but he says, but don't worry, salvation is coming. He's coming. The incarnation, Jesus being born of the flesh, being both fully God and fully man, is essential to the Christian faith. It's a core piece. Think about what the Apostles' Creed says. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The Nicene Creed, which we said today, for us and for our salvation, He, that is Jesus, came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. We could write volumes about how important this is. I don't want us to lose sight of this. It's so important. It is key. Without Christ coming down in the form of a man, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no salvation. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 18 tell us this, For indeed, He, that is Jesus, does not give aid to angels, but He does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And remember, what is Abraham's seed? Those that believe in God, Yahweh, the Lord, both in his direct descendants and those that are ingrafted in. Because what, how many are the, are the numbers of his descendants? As the stars in the sky 
and the, the sands along the sea. That is amazing when we think about God's promise that God sent Jesus not to give aid to the angels, to spirits, but to give aid to the seed of Abraham, those that are called. Therefore, in all things, he had to, make, he had to be like his brethren. That is, Jesus had to be like us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make a propitiation. Okay, there's that $8,000 word, right? For the sins of the people. What is that? So let's read this again and, and try to understand this better. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, like us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest going as a mediator between us and God. In all things pertaining to God, all things, not just one, but all things. To render himself to appease the holiness of God for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. <clears throat> we could not deal with temptation without Christ living a holy life, being born of a virgin, this miraculous incarnation. This is so important. To continue this thought, I think it's very important we understand the true implications of the incarnation. First of all, it elevates motherhood. In the incarnation, there is no more contempt for women. I don't care what the feminists say. All you have to do is be a faithful student of history and go anywhere in the world where God and Christianity has not transformed the culture to see how women are treated outside of God's truth. Their property, their chattel, they're treated as nothing. You see, in Christianity, there is no more contempt for women. The doctrine of the virgin birth sanctifies womanhood. And you say, well, how can that even be? Well, think about this. Jesus grew under his mother's heart. Not in some philosophical way. No, really. When the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, right? And God created a new life. Jesus grew under the heart of his mother Mary. Living and breathing heart. The virgin birth sanctifies womanhood. It sanctifies motherhood. Jesus not only grew under his mother's heart, but was born through her body and then nursed by Mary and cared for in her arms, even at the cross. Now, I just think about this as a, as a father. I would lay my life down for my kids. Right? When your kids call you and they're in a car wreck and you say, oh, i got to get there. I can tell you the worst, the worst feeling I ever had. My son James was, um, and I got a call that James and his friend had been in an accident coming home from work. 
and I pulled up to the intersection and I look out and I see his friend, the driver, talking to the, um, to the policeman and there's ambulances everywhere and I look around, I don't see James anywhere. I'm, I'm afraid. It's, you say, I'll train myself in a second. As it turns out, he was sitting over there on the, on the bumper of the ambulance making jokes. But as a parent, you give your, give your life for your kids. And Mary carried Jesus and was at the foot of the cross when he was crucified. And by the way, she wasn't deceived. Read the Magnificat. You know, there's this song, Mary, did you know? I'm like, well, did you read the Bible? <laughs> read the Magnificat. She knew what he was coming for. She wasn't deceived. Okay, she knew that he was the savior of the world and he was going to deliver the world of his sins. And I'm sure at that moment, watching Jesus suffering and dying on the cross was so hard. It was so hard. And she trusted God that he was going to deliver not just her or the people of Israel, but all from, this, from their sins. You know, back to motherhood and being sanctified, C.S. Lewis says this, the one, motherhood is the one job which all other jobs exist. Now think about this. Without your mother tending to you, you don't grow up and take on other jobs. Without motherhood, without women, there is no incarnation, there is no salvation. God made motherhood essential there in Genesis chapter 3 and in the coming of salvation. Motherhood is an instrument of salvation, even for your own children, first through Christ, and then for you in training up, in teaching, and having a liturgy of life in Christ Jesus, telling your children, listen, folks, don't get tied up with all kinds of external rules. If, if you are trying to teach your kids things and you can't point them to the scriptures as to why they need to do something, you need to study more so that you can. And at all things, you're pointing to God, His grace. And we do this because the scripture says this. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, we, we've read this and we've been like, I don't even understand this. There's some kind of suppression going on. I just know it. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says this, Nevertheless, talking about women, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and with self-control. Okay, that, that translation there is choppy, and it misleads us. We're thinking about women in general, but it is really this. Nevertheless, she will be saved in the childbirth all of humanity is saved through the childbirth of Jesus Christ Mary is the prototype for all other mothers but you see Jesus didn't just come and it isn't just about Mary but they're tied together but through Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary we see this. We see that the God-man, from the very moment of conception, is redeeming the world. 
The church father, Irenaeus, says this, Christ passed through every age becoming an infant for infants, thus sanctifying them. A child for children, thus sanctifying them. Youths for youths, becoming an example for all youths, thus sanctifying them for the Lord. Likewise, he was a mature man for mature men, that he may be a perfect master for all. Pause and consider how the incarnation helps us in our understanding and our regard for the unborn child. Jesus became the embryo for all embryos. We need to protect life. People of God, we need to be praying for the Supreme Court to make a godly decision. And we need to be praying that the church remain faithful and love and care for all children, especially the unborn. We understand by the fact that the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus that all life, we are reminded that all life is sacred to God, created in His image. We must protect the unborn. Now, of course, the virgin birth, the incarnation, that seems like nonsense. And all of God's enemies object to it. Many moderns, even liberal theologians, who object to the supernatural claim that Mary and Joseph and most of the church history, they can't believe at all. They can't believe that Jesus was God and that a virgin had a baby, because that can't happen. Maybe the problem is, they say, that they just didn't grow up in the scientific age. They didn't know where babies came from. They were just ignorant about how this all worked. Oh yeah, and, and all of those in church history. Um, I don't think so. They did understand how the world works. What did Mary say? How can this be? because I have not known a man. I'm pretty sure fairly quickly in all of this, Adam and Eve understood what was going on here. And, and frankly, I believe that the Lord was using the angels to instruct Adam and Eve, and they were learning about the world and everything in it. And of course, we know that from Romans 1 that we can learn from God's creation. All you have to do is pause and consider and watch, and you'll see, and figure it out. They weren't ignorant. Think about this. Not only was Mary not ignorant, Joseph wasn't ignorant either. Think of Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Why? Because in the ordinary way, in all of history, before and all of history, after... No virgin ever had a baby. They understood just like the church understood. You see, moderns, they want Jesus to be something studied, an academic pursuit, someone that, oh, he was a good man, he was the founder of Christianity, there's some good principles. This is why they want to say, oh, let's focus on the words of Jesus, let's do away with the epistles, it's, it's just about Jesus. Oh, don't look at the Old Testament, those things, that, that was just all rigid. No, no, just look at Jesus. And of course, they're not actually looking at Jesus, born of 
the Holy Spirit by a mother in a miraculous way. No, he's somebody to be studied because he was somehow a good man. Again, I mentioned him earlier, Machen, in Christianity and Liberalism. And let's hear another excerpt because I think it's very helpful. He says this, Yet for modern liberalism, a supernatural person is never historical. A problem arises then for those who adopt the liberal point of view. The Jesus of the New Testament is historical. He is supernatural. And yet what is supernatural on the liberal hypothesis can never be historical. The problem can be sol solved only by the separation of the natural from the supernatural in the New Testament account of Jesus, in order that what was supernatural might be rejected and what is natural might be retained. But the process of separation has never been successfully carried out. Many have been the attempts the modern liberal church has put at its very heart and soul into this effort, so that there is scarcely any more brilliant chapter in the history of the human spirit than this quest of the historical Jesus. But all attempts have failed. The trouble is that the miracles are found not to be an exorcist in the New Testament account of Jesus, but belong to the very warp and woof, that is, to the very solid core of it. They are intimately connected with Jesus' lofty claims. They stand or fall with the undoubted purity of his character. They reveal the very nature of his vision mission to the world I know that was a little long but let me just say this here right there's a couple of things first of all Machen wrote this in 1934 okay and he's talking about all the the liberal church and the churches trying to find the historical Jesus and making Jesus something intellectual to study but they didn't want to have anything to do with the supernatural what is this coming from it's coming from humanism. It's coming from Darwinianism. It's coming from hating God and not wanting to submitting to Christ. And we know that these very efforts, if I hadn't told you this was written in the 30s, you'd have thought this could have been written yesterday. Right? They continue on and they put all kinds of effort and energy and pay big money so that their books hit the uh, New York Times bestseller list, right? But... The incarnation and all the supernatural, they reveal the very nature of Christ's mission to the world. I've said all these things and shared these things from God's word for this purpose. The incarnation needs to be in the liturgy of our life. This church calendar that I mentioned before, again, if you haven't had a chance to go back, I encourage you to go and take a look at, I, I sent out a, a link and uh, fellow pastor Yuri Brito did eight reasons to follow the church calendar. And it's all about being Christocentric, not following saints, although it's good to reflect from time to time. But let us follow the life of Christ. The whole point of it is to have a Christ-centered daily life worked out. Let us liturgize our daily life. Think about this now. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for the days and years. And again, 
and verse 15, And let them be lights for the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And, and it was so. God, in the very beginning, when he established the earth, set up things for times and seasons. The movement of the stars are revolving around the sun. The moon affecting tides and everything else that helped us formulate calendars and seasons. And when he establishes how to worship him in the Old Testament, he talks about using the cycles of the moon. And, and this, is, this is why Easter shifts. You know that, right? It's, it has to do with what, where the moon cycle is. Okay? These are all things God set out. And for us today, we need to think, okay, God established seasons as markers. And how can we do these things in a way that make Christ the center of all things. We need a heavy dose of Jesus all year round. We need to have Christocentric dates. We need to understand that the consequences of Jesus' life to our lives, which is why we need to think about the church calendar and think about Advent, think about Easter and Lent and all these things and the common era where we just are studying all of God's works, all of Jesus' works, we never forget. And why is this important? Well, first of all, that if we follow the church calendar, if we make Jesus the center of all things, we de-emphasize the politics of men by, by emphasizing the politics of God. There's a lot of noise out there. This is why I want us to think about the church calendar. I don't care what happens out there, and of course I'm praying for it. I'm praying for our leaders. We're praying for all kinds of things. For God to move, to, to bring revival, to change people's lives. But the wars and rumors of wars, the troubles, the difficulties that are out there, they're going to change. Times will change. There will be new problems, new things, new things. But Christ, God, His mercy, His redemption, His relationship with us, restoring us to God the Father, it is the same. The empires will fall. And the church, the people of God, will remain. Second, we redeem our time best. We know we are to redeem our time, right? Because the days are what? Evil. Redeem the time best by framing our lives by the life of Christ. Jesus is our Savior. Don't let ourselves frame our daily life and everything that's going on with our kids simply reactionary to what's happening. Reorient yourself, your families, your view of all things by the life of Christ. And third, this is so important for catechizing our children, for training up, for discipling our kids. If we live our lives where we are making Christ the center of it, then they begin to understand life. Life only makes sense because Jesus has come for us. Right? All those who don't know Christ can't make sense of life. They're grasping for it. They're struggling for it. Some have given up on it. But that's really what it is. People are trying to make sense of their life. But life only makes sense because Jesus has come for us. We need to make all, our, all areas of our life centered around Christ. Finally, I want us to close with these thoughts because I'm laying this out for you, but I want to circle back to culture. 
that we were talking about in the beginning and all the efforts that are made. Three reasons, I think, that we don't have daily seasonal, um, daily and seasonal liturgies going on are this. One, we're lazy. Dads, I'm going to put this on you. Husbands, I'm going to put this on you. I find most cases our wives are asking us to do it, and we are just slow to it. We're lazy. Sometimes we're busy, right? We're busy. Things happen. So here's the thing about a liturgy. We, we set it up, we do it, and then if, if an emergency happens, and what do we call that? That's providentially hindered. You have a plan. God inserts something beyond your control. That is God's control. He's inserting that, right? And then what do you do? You deal with that. He providentially put that thing in your life. And then what? Then you go back to being Christ-centered, ordering your day, ordering your seasons, ordering your life. And I think this, I think for those that have spurts of it, this is real big. We don't want to submit to being confronted by God's truth. If we don't read God's word with our kids, with our families, with our wives, we don't have to be confronted except for on Sunday when that preacher gets up and preaches too long. But that purgatory, that's going to be over in just a few minutes and we're going to go eat. Oh, first at the Lord's table, of course. Right? But you, you know what? I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting around and I read a passage and I think, mm, mm, mm. I'm the chief of all sinners. And that, that causes me to confess my sins to my wife, to my children, to those that might be there when we're um, worshiping that get invited in. If you want your kids to be centered on Christ, Go through God's word with them. Confess your sins. Let mercy and grace be one notch higher than justice. And listen, if we've been failing in this area, you know, Advent coming up on a new year. Advent, of course, is the start of the church year. It's a wonderful time to reorient, refocus. Recognize where we're sinning. And we need to repent where we've allowed other things or ideas become the rulers of our lives and restart, restart, reset to this, the startling, the unimaginable awesomeness of the work of Christ by making the liturgy of Christ the center of our lives, our household, our church. Why? Because Jesus is Lord and his church will remain. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you loved us so much that you didn't keep being in heaven and being God from keeping you from coming down in the form of a man. You humbled yourself for us that we might be forgiven, restored, and brought back into a right place. Help us to order our lives according to your word and be strengthened together. Lord, as we go to your table, draw us closer to you and to each other through the work of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.